Super Teams podcast. This is the third podcast that we've done so far on the subject of the England versus Australia Ashes tests. It's me, Dave, here with Jeremy. Hi, Jeremy. How are you? Hi, Dave. I'm very well. Hello, everybody. Hope you're having a good day and really looking forward to talking about cricket again. And it's been interesting, hasn't it? England fighting back in the third test. It certainly was. And it was really excellent. In fact, something I wanted to start this podcast with was a quote from the end of the second test where Stokes said after losing the second test, it's very exciting to know that the way in which we're playing our cricket actually couldn't be more perfect for the game we find ourselves in. We have to win these three games to get this earned back. And it's that just sums up what England's philosophy is all about. Well, part of what England's philosophy is all about, uh, to create history, to set new records. Only one team in Ashes history has come back from 2-0 down in the series, yeah. and that was Australia back in the 30s, I think. And England have never done it. So this is another chance for this team to create history. And it's interesting how they see major adversity, like being 2-0 down and you've got no margin for error as an opportunity. Well, it's a clever reframe, isn't it? So if we just remind ourselves that the central sort of proposition of the England team's identity is around removing fear. And so that means in terms of your actions on the pitch, you have to follow through with actions that are fearless. That's what we, that's what they want to see from the players. But also you have to have a narrative that sits behind that, that says, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. So from a, again, from a neurological perspective, we, we know that if we can uh, transfer something from a perception of fear to a perception of challenge, so a perception of, a perception of threat to a perception of challenge, then that means that the brain interprets things in different ways and releases different chemicals into the body which which are helpful for performance indeed and we saw some real manifestations of that in this test match we saw mark wood bowling one of the fastest overs in history since records of recording ball speed began right a uh, really frightening over in the 90s which it's interesting how that extra five miles an hour really unsettled the batters. And then we saw his batting, where in quite precarious positions in both innings, he came out with the intention of hitting fours and sixes. And yeah. I think he scored something like 42 runs in the in over the two two innings, which were absolutely crucial to England winning winning the game. For anyone that didn't see the game, we won by three wickets in a very close finish. So that that was that. And then we also saw Moeen Ali in the second innings wanting to, I think the quote was something like, I want to get at the Aussies. And uh, he was promoted up to number three in the in the batting order, which was an interesting decision because that protected Harry Brook from having to bat at three and kept him at five, which meant he could come in later in the innings and actually play an innings that held the second innings together. And helped yeah. us get very close. I was going to say get over the line, but he was out with about twenty needed. I think he got very got got the team very close to the line. So very interesting 
thinking around that. And there was some debate as to whether they were going to move Brooke down the order anyway and whether Moeen, Moeen's volunteering was convenient or whether Moeen's volunteering actually prompted it, but prompted the change. But whatever happened, it worked out very well for England. There's obviously some people who will look at this last test match and say England's selection was different. So they brought in Moeen Ali, Chris Wokes, and Wood. sorry, Chris Wood and Wokes. Sorry, sorry, it's it's Chris yeah. Wokes and Mark Wood. Sorry, yes, I was just trying to remind you the first way name. Around yeah. So we'll get, we'll do that again. So they brought in they brought in Chris Wokes and Mark Wood, and so you know there will be people who will say they just had a stronger team. It was a better team, better bowlers, and Wokes is you know a world class all rounder, and so having players come back from injury was was what made the difference but what are your thoughts about that argument i think the it was a better balanced team i would say now were england was the england policy to become a little more sensible in quotes which is what some of the pundits have been asking for england to be a bit more considered was this I think teams evolve. Teams evolve, selections evolve over any kind of series that you're playing. You're you're working out matchups against the opposition. You're working out your best matchups against the opposition. You might start with one team that you think can be successful, but you may have to pivot to a different balance. And I think that's what England did very successfully in this in this particular test. They got the balance right. In t- especially in terms of the bowling attack. And it's yeah. funny, isn't it, how with certain injuries to certain players, changes have to be made. And I think they made pretty much the right changes. Well, the, you would say that when we've won, of course, but it did feel like a better balanced team. And certainly a longer tail. And I certainly said to a friend of mine the before the match, I said, this is a very long tail England got with Broad batting at 11 he was batting at i think 8 in the second in the first and second test so with him batting at 10 or 11 that made the tail a lot longer and yeah what did we need at the end we needed a long tail to win the game so there was some vindication in that i think yeah it does it it definitely makes a difference doesn't it mm. and they did play a bit differently didn't they uh, you know that was my sense of i didn't watch every day of the test match but my sense was there was a little bit more caution to start with. And then once the players had established themselves, they started to to hit the ball to try and go for boundaries. Perhaps with the exception, actually, of Mark Wood, who just seemed to come in and smash the ball all over the place. But so, I, you know, you talk about teams maturing and I guess also the challenge changes. But it's interesting, was that still baseball? Was that still the fearless cricket that they've talked about? Or do you do you think it was a bit more reserved? I think it depends what we're defining as baseball because the some of the performances we saw last year where every batter, well, most batters were from ball one trying to hit the ball. We didn't see so much of that this time. Is that conditions play a part in that, of course. The strength of the opposition plays a part in in that. But 
if we really examine Basball as we did in the last podcast, we talk about this idea of this is really not about coming and clattering the, the leather off the ball. This is about having clarity about what it is you're going to go out there to do and then committing to that plan. And we saw with Stokes, what Stokes tries to do, in fact, I think he's consistently tried to do this across all the test matches, is to come out and and play very carefully for his first 50 runs and yeah. then push on from there, typically because he's left with the tail and it makes sense to, it doesn't make sense to hang around anymore. But there's a clear plan and he's got clarity around that. He talks about his clarity when he bats yeah. around clarity around that plan. And so I think what we saw was maybe a change in plans from some of the batters, but clarity around that change in plan. And that's what the that's what the the leaders in that team want. They want the players to have clarity, even if it's clarity around defending, but then commit to that clarity. Yeah. Yeah. I think Ben Duckett, we 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 found an article from Ben Duckett, didn't we? And that's right, in The Guardian. It's really interesting. If if you watched him play, one of the things so he doesn't he hasn't stopped going for his shots. He he's no. his league percentage was still very low. But one of the things he worked on that was evident during the game was when he was hooking and pulling to make sure he was bringing his bat from up to down. In other words, so he's hitting the ball down. Still playing the shot, but playing it technically perhaps a bit with less risk, with a bit less risk. And uh, he 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 did that. He did that in both innings, and he scored, I think, a combined total of 180 runs in this, which he pointed out himself, an aggregate of 180 runs. But he got a bit vilified for getting out on 98 to a pull shot. And yeah. just interesting your thoughts on that. Well, one of the things which it just seems a perpetual problem for this England team is that the pundits and, you know, I'm thinking of Jonathan Agnew and, and, and Michael Vaughan and Kevin Peterson sort of sending in messages from where he is in Safari or wherever he happens to be are very critical of England. And they, it's, it's, I don't know whether they don't get it or they don't understand the intention of the narrative and the the style of play. Perhaps they're not very psychologically literate. And so they don't, you know, they genuinely don't understand what the England team appeared to be doing. Or perhaps it makes them reflect back on their time when they were test cricketers and, and wonder if perhaps they, they, they should have done things differently themselves. But Certainly, Duckett still go, gets an awful lot of criticism, and and the whole team does. And it, it, you know, to a certain extent, with England winning this last Test match, that that's changed a little bit. But I think there's still an undercurrent which is critical of England playing the style of cricket that they they have been playing. And I my suspicion is it is out of a lack of understanding of psychologically what's going on here. I think when they talk, when you hear Jonathan Agnew and Michael Vaughan talk, especially when they discuss it on Test Match Special, it's very results and outcome focused. You know, yeah. like Michael Vaughan, I said in either the first or second test, baseball's all very, very well, but it's all about winning. And, you know, no, no one's going to disagree that cricket, you play any sport to win. That's that's part of the part of the attraction and part of the challenge of sport is 
is is to perform as well as you can with the hope of winning. The, the difficulty here is England have deprioritized the outcome. They've deprioritized the outcome, but they've done it in a, a very clever psychological way to in order to give themselves a better probability of getting the outcome they want, which is to win. They've had to deprioritize it because they've realized that psychologically, if we focus on winning and talk about winning, that creates pressure, that creates fear. And then the opposite happens. We we yeah. are likely to then lose because batters and bowlers are playing a very different game than if they're playing without fear. And you you get a game of cricket where maybe two teams are playing a very sort of safety first game of cricket, which is becomes quite difficult to watch as well. It can be tense, yeah. but it becomes it's not as entertaining. And so this sort of second idea of the England team trying to save Test cricket and and create entertaining cricket, there's no doubt they've done that in all three games, even this third game where maybe some approaches were changed. But the key thing is this deprioritization of outcomes. Which, as as when you hear Jonathan Aguilar and Michael Vaughan talk, as I said, it feels like they haven't really grasped the reason behind that point. And so, you know, Michael Vaughan said this one at the end of this test. He said, fantastic. Both teams have produced three games of cricket. You only dream of commentating on. Well, I don't remember at the end of the second test, he was talking about what a dream it was to commentate <laughs> on those first two defeats. <laughs> But now we've got a victory and the test series is live. Suddenly it's all OK. And so I think that that actual quote vindicates England's approach. What they've done there is they've convinced Michael Vaughan that this is actually in entertaining cricket. And it's a kind of cricket that you can only dream of commentating on. So yeah. I think it's actually they've actually got Michael Vaughan on board, strangely, with, with, with the whole approach. Now, whether he would admit to that, I don't know. But And if you look at that final day, there were plenty of chances for Australia to take wickets. There was a few dodgy edges that fell safe that on another day they could have gone to an Australian player and in the field and we'd have been bowled out before we got to the total. So, you know, it's it's still on a knife edge. Basball is still there, whatever you think basball is. But for some people, the result changes everything. It's interesting, isn't it? Because if you looked at the first two tests, the number of extras that England gave away, the number of mistakes, other mistakes that they made in the field in terms of dropped catches, fielding errors, was the difference between the two teams. Mm. And if, if, in fact, I think that it was exactly the extras that was the difference between the two teams. Yes. And what we saw in the third test was a definite improvement from England in terms of reducing extras and holding on to their catches as well, I think. And so despite having lost two tests, what we saw was greater levels of concentration. And I guess that's that's what you want. I mean, I guess you could be critical of the lower levels of concentration earlier on in the in the series, but you could also argue, I think, that but for some exceptional performances by the Australian team, England would have won the second test. So, for instance, the you know the ninth wit wicket partnership was between Nathan Lyons and Pat Cummins was fifty five runs, and you don't really expect that mm. at that point of the game. And in England really didn't look like they were going to get a wicket at that time in the game. Mm. So, so Australia really stepped up, and and England seemed to have improved for this this game. Coming back to your point about have they won over their critics? 
I was reading an article in the Sydney Morning Herald after the second test and before the third test. And uh, this is a, a quote from it. It says, they, England have been operating in a parallel universe since appearing to celebrate the loss because it was so entertaining when they need to win the series to regain the ashes. So I wonder whether the Australian journalists have also re-evaluated a little bit now. Maybe, maybe not, Pro probably not. <laughs> Interesting point from one of the players as well. I think it was Ben Duckett again, talking about how actually there's a lot of respect between the teams on the pitch and that the sledging isn't as 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 bad as he might have anticipated and that therefore he's enjoying the match there's also a quote from Labuschagne the australian batter where he says i really enjoy the way they play england i'm not going to lie as a cricket watcher watching the series prior i've loved it i think it's exciting it's entertaining it's good to watch but that's interesting, isn't it? That, in fact, all of the players now are probably starting to appreciate being part of this exciting approach to test cricket. And and there's been some changes in the culture of the Australian team as well. We haven't really talked much about the Australian team, but there's been some changes in their culture over the last couple of years too. Well, I think that's an interesting area to explore because we focused, I think we were both very excited by this psychological shift that had happened in the England changing room with the England leaders leadership team. We haven't really talked, we haven't talked, it's not really, we haven't at all talked about the Australia culture, the Australian dressing room culture. And not that we have great insight into that because there is, there are fewer articles that we can find on that. But it might just be interesting to explore that a little bit and explore what we can at least see and what might be going on with the with the Australian team. So any thoughts on that? Well, my understanding is that when the current head coach came in, Andrew McDonald, hmm. that he did make some quite significant cultural changes compared to his predecessor. And what the players have talked about is a much more adult-to-adult -adult kind of environment. Mm. So this is using a sort of transactional analysis idea. What transactional analysis suggests is that if you act like a parent, if you tell people what to do, if you chide them or tell them off when they don't do what's required of them, if you're very directive, but also then very supportive and encouraging but as long as they do what they're told, then what you get is a kind of childlike response from the people who you're interacting with in that way. And that childlike response means that they don't tend to make decisions for themselves. They're fairly subservient and they're doing what they're told because they're told to do it rather than because um, they believe in it. And and the second byproduct of that is that sometimes those those children turn into stroppy adolescents who just want to argue back. And yes, of course, they'll comply, but they don't really buy into what's happening. So it seemed to me that they'd gone from a parent-child kind of situation to more of an adult-to-adult -adult relationship between the head coach, the coaching staff, and the players. And the reason I say that is that my understanding is that they've, for instance, changed the way in which they train. So they've made things optional now. And McDonald has been saying to the players, okay, we have these training sessions. 
come if you think it's going to be helpful for you to come. He's told them when he thinks it's particularly important for them to come, but he's still given them the the final say-so as to whether they do attend that training or not. And, and what he's really saying is, you're the guys who are going to go out there and do it. You're the guys who know what shape your body's in. You're the guys who know what you need to work on from the perspective of your own technique. We're going to give you feedback. We're going to give you information, but we're then going to let you make choices about how you approach your own training, what kind of coaching input you need, how much physical work you need, how much rest you need, and so on and so on. And that's an interesting change and it's an empowering change so perhaps what we're seeing is is a more mature or certainly a different approach within the australian dressing room as well yes that's interesting and we know that the australian team historically and traditionally have been have had a reputation let's say that of being aggressive out on the pitch in the in the batter's faces lots of chats and try to intimidate batters. And it was interesting to read a quote from, you know, I think you mentioned it earlier, there was a quote from Ben Duckett in this article that where he was interviewed. And he said this, he said, my view on the Australian team is that they're a very, very good team. He then follows it up. But they're a nice bunch of guys or a bunch of nice guys. Pat Cummins seems like one of the nicest blokes in cricket. If I bowled 90 miles an hour like him, I'd give the batter a lot more chat, but it doesn't feel like they're trying to intimidate anyone out there. They're just focusing on their skills. And I think that's, you know, that's only a small anecdote, but, but from somebody that's on the receiving end of their fast bowling. But it's interesting that that's what he sees. He sees a team very much focused on their skills. And I think it's been documented elsewhere that most England players will say that this is the best team they've come up against since this change of approach. And when you're faced with a team that can execute skills at a very high level, you're going to be tested. Your approach, your technique, everything is going to be tested. And this is what the Australian team seem intent on doing, seem intent on showcasing their skills and making sure that they're in the best position to execute their skills, which you could argue is not actually a million miles away from what England are doing. This idea of being having clarity on your plans and then and then executing those plans. So there's something quite similar here, maybe. And it's interesting to contrast it with what's happening in other sports or perhaps to compare it with what's happening in other sports. So one of the, I think, question marks that's going through football, soccer at the moment, and rugby as well, is whether players really benefit from being given so many targets and being measured Mm. the whole time. If you're a Premier League football player, typically you'll be wearing your GPS vest the whole time. You'll be told what to eat and when to eat it. You'll have to enter into the app on your phone what it is you've been consuming. You'll be wearing, you'll have a wearable on which will measure how much you've slept. Your training load will be worked out for you every week and you'll be told when you need to stop and when you need to stop training is based on how much you've run in that training session and is calculated with an algorithm which is designed to reduce the likelihood of you getting a soft tissue injury from continuing to train whilst you're you're 
perhaps past a certain level of lactic acid. And so it goes on and on and on. And one of the concerns among some performance staff, the more, I guess, progressive performance staff within football at the moment is, have we gone too far? Have we reached a point where actually players don't make any decisions for themselves? And and therefore, we're creating these quite passive individuals who are incapable of uh, changing gear or changing direction when that's needed in in matches. I guess if you're Pep Guardiola, you might make the argument that you want your players to stick to the game plan and to play in the style that that you want them to play in. But there's a balancing act to be had, I would say. And that is definitely infantilizing of footballers. Now, I don't think it's quite the same in cricket, but I'm I'm sure there are some similarities around physical workloads and probably players being asked to report on their psychological state and, and well-being as well. It's interesting, isn't it? It depends what stats you've used to drive performance. So I remember reading recently Declan Rice with his impending transfer to Arsenal, which has now been which has now gone through, they were examining his tackling stats as a defensive midfielder. And I think I saw a stat that said he's he's not he's nowhere near the top of the number of tackles made as a defensive midfielder, but he's right at the top or very near the top of the number of effective tackles made. Right. So, in other words, his his tackle his tackle success percentage is very high his number of tackles is relatively low. And you can interpret that as, okay, does he not get his foot in enough? Does he not get stuck in enough? Or is he very good at covering space and knowing when the right time to make a tackle is? And clearly Arsenal believe the latter and have paid £105 million for that. So, so, you know, be careful which stat you pick to to validate somebody by and then also for the players be careful which stat you pay attention to with your for your performance so as you say there's a lot of statistics flying around and it's really important to make sure comes back to clarity to make sure you're clear about what your role is in any sports team and then commit to and then commit to that commit to that role coming back to andrew mcdonald you know, he was appointed back in, I think it was April of last year. He'd been the interim manager after Justin Langer stepped down. And and he's clearly a very different kind of person to Justin Langer. I listened to a podcast recently in which Justin Langer was talking about himself and the way that he approached cricket. And it was obvious that he's a very passionate cricketer, but is driven by that passion. And I can imagine would be an extremely demanding coach and would be the kind of coach who would be in your face a lot of the time and setting standards. And if you didn't live up to those standards, then, you know, there would be consequences. Whereas it looks like Andrew McDonald is a much more contemplative kind of a character who looks at the long term, realizes that the team has to pace itself and is trying to build the sort of depth of not just experience within the team, but depth of leadership within the team for them to be able to 
go on long tours like the one they're on at the moment and and put in consistent performances, which you have to say they really have. I think that's it comes back to that what kind of culture and team ethic he's setting in the in the group. Where I think it's being tested at the moment, and it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the next two tests, is they have a number of batters who are struggling. So we've got my namesake, David Warner, at the top of the order, who's who Stuart Broad seems to have his number. Yeah. And so he struggled for runs. We've quite interestingly had Labuschagne and Smith, the two, two of the best batters in the world, who, comparatively speaking, have struggled for runs in this series. I know Smith has got some runs, but nowhere near the amount that we would expect him to expect him to have got at this stage. Trevor Head has he has batted with clarity, I would say, and he has done exactly what he's supposed to do in that position: accumulate runs and you know nurse the lower order through the end of the innings. And he's been very successful at doing that. So. And I think what was also interesting, we we mentioned that this might happen in the last podcast, is that the wicketkeeper Carey uh, was coming in after the controversy of the last Test match, and how would that affect him? And we certainly saw the crowd get at him. How yes. that? How much does that affect a professional, a professional individual? Well, it's hard to tell, but. He struggled with the bats when he was batting both innings. And then we saw quite an extraordinary situation towards the end of the second innings where Mark Wood got a top edge on one of his hooks and it was going down. They had somebody basically in a long, long stop position behind the or backstop position behind the wicketkeeper whose catch it was. But Carey decided to run about 40 yards to try and dive headlong to catch it. Now, that, that, that seemed to be a lack of clarity of thinking in that moment. So I'm wondering to what extent several of the Australian players are not working with clarity for various reasons, for various internal reasons within their own minds. And each one will be individual. But that is, that's four players I've mentioned that seem to be acting without clarity and commitment. And that's quite a big percentage of your team. That's over one third of your team. So let's so just dig into that like... a bit more detail. Mm. <coughs> well, excuse me. Let's just dig into that in a bit more detail. So with Carey, he makes a decision to make the long distance stumping and was heavily criticised. Obviously, in Australia, he was not criticised. And indeed umpires who I've seen commentating on it said, well, there was nothing wrong with what he did. And so it was within the the rules and, and the Ferrari about it being against the spirit. Well, that's a matter of judgment, isn't it? And, and you can see that those judgments are polarized, but if you put yourself in his shoes for a moment, there is a lot of criticism and then there's a lot of hostility and what he's done in the media is he's doubled down on it. And he said, I, I would do that again you know i think i did the right thing and i would do it again and i'm happy with the decision i made and you know i, I i'm fine but probably the reality is different so if we were to think about the chimp model and the idea of his emotions his emotional chimp having an impact on how he approaches his cricket and starting to interfere 
what what do you think might be going on there well i think if he's having an emotional response to it either because what he did doesn't fully align with his belief system so there's some internal conflict going on or because it just feels uncomfortable and the booing and the hostility when you're getting constant media attention because England made this a sort of moral issue. England were quite smart about how they almost created a culture war. Whatever you think about it, England have been quite smart to create this sort of culture war about the spirit of cricket and England are on the right side of it and the Australians are on the wrong side of it. So if we think about that particular instance where he sprinted back directly behind the wickets to try and dive and take a catch over his shoulders. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I think you're saying is that if he's feeling an emotional pressure, if his chimp, if you like, is saying to him, you need to prove yourself, you need to show that you you are a good cricketer, you need to show that you can do the right thing, then perhaps you chase something which you shouldn't chase because your emotions are telling you and making that argument to you. That would that would seem to be a, a classic kind of chimp moment, wouldn't it? When you look at that, really we're operating out of the computer part of our brain most of the time when we're executing our skills, when we're driving a car, etc. When we're doing things on automatic, we're operating out of the computer. And a well-programmed computer like his, when he's been in professional cricket a decent amount of time, will know what to do. So in that moment, the ball goes up in the air, his brain computes what's happening and makes a judgment. And if it was left to the computer, which is the absolute fastest part of his brain, the computer would have probably said, right, shout to the man at the shout to the backstop, it's his catch because that's the percentage play. But as soon as you get the emotional interference, unfortunately, although the emotional brain is faster than the human, but it's slower than the computer, but it's more powerful than both, as soon as that kicks in, it takes over. So an example might be that you're um, in your car to work on a route that you've travelled on time and time again. You wouldn't even be able to say what route you took to get to work. And someone steps out in front of you or you hit a bit of black ice and suddenly your attention is there and your emotions have let forward and you have a reaction to that. Is that what you mean about the the difference between the computer and... And the, and the chimp and the emotional thinking. Yes, it it is. You know, we've got these three parts to our brain. And for most of the day, for human beings, we're operating actually out of our computer. So when I drink from my water bottle, I don't have to consciously think about how to do that. I just know how to do that. And I can do it without thinking. Now, so we're navigating our, through our day. You think about getting up in the morning, brushing your teeth, getting dressed. We don't really consciously think about these things, apart from when we have to make decisions like, what do I wear today? Now we might bring in our human for logic to say, well, I'm going into work. I'll wear something smart or not, as the case may be. Or I'm sitting at home, so I'll, I perhaps I'll just sit in my pyjamas or whatever. But these are more conscious decisions that the human might get involved in. And then sometimes when we are in some kind of emotional distress or most emotional excitement the chimp will come in so for example if we're driving the car along and suddenly there's an emergency in front of us we want we want the emotional thinking part to come in to act quickly 
potentially and and to and and to take evasive action and we sort of thank our chimp for being involved now that's also the computer prompting the chimp that you know we may need to do an emergency stop but we get that sort of that fast response but but sometimes when that emotional response is unhelpful like it was for alex carey we're going to see a chimp trying to catch a ball and that's effectively what we had the chimp had taken over and decided it needed to take action for whatever reason like you say maybe to look good to redeem himself whatever but we then saw a chimp trying to catch a ball and there's one thing we do know chimps can't catch cricket balls so it turned out to be a really badly judged decision, which actually meant that Mark Wood stayed in a bit longer and made the run chase a little bit easier. So that's sort of what we're seeing there. And and if we just, again, go a bit deeper into this, because I think this is quite interesting. So if we contrast that to the England team, and the my understanding of what's happened in the England team is that they've spent a lot of time talking about who they want to be together. So what do they stand for? That's been described as basball but it's a it's a style of cricket they've got a lot of agreement and shared belief about that they've got a lot of agreement and shared belief about why they're doing this and that is to play entertaining cricket and to save test cricket from from a slow and painful demise and i imagine and certainly well let's put it this way if you and i were involved with this team then what we'd also be talking about is their values and their values around perhaps things like fair play, their values around their commitment to each other, their expectations of each other. And why do we spend so much time talking about values? And, you know, a lot of organizations talk about their values and it's just lip service play, paid to them. You know, you go to an offsite, you talk about values for an hour and a half on an offsite, you come back and everyone says, what a waste of time that was. Well, the reason that we talk about values and we need to keep coming back to them is because these are the fundamental beliefs that have an emotion attached to them. And when they're aligned with the way in which we're acting, it allows us to have clarity. So when you were talking about clarity before, it's really clarity that comes because when our chimp is is sort of just allowing the computer to go on autopilot, it's not triggered because it doesn't see a problem. It goes and looks into the computer and it says, no, that's consistent with our values. That's how we do things here. This is a deeply held belief and emotionally I'm comfortable with it. And so I imagine that the England team have spent time having those conversations and perhaps perpetually have those conversations. And the narrative that we see released out to the press, and I'm attributing this of England being very clever by the way and it may not be that it might be accidental but let's give them credit and we'll find out whether it was deserved but <laughs> if you were being clever about this then you would be putting out a narrative to support those beliefs so that when the players look at what's coming through on the media or social media even though they're told not to but I'm sure they do when that happens what they see is something that backs up the beliefs that they've been talking about. And in fact, even the criticism that they get from the Australian media and the criticism that they get from the old guard, the, the Vaughans and the Aggers and, and, and so on, the Kevin Petersons, just goes to reaffirm that they're right in their mind. If you were trying to construct a good narrative here, then it would just reaffirm that they're right because what they're trying to do is break with the past. 
you know, their connection with the past is that they're not the same. Mm. And, and of course, it's a similar thing that Gareth Southgate did with the England football team when he took over as head coach. And I think one of the difficulties the Australian team have had with that particular incident with Carey is that they may also have a belief, they may have a set of values which align with not doing that and not breaking the spirit of cr- cricket to sort of use a, a, a strange term. But once they'd done it and they hadn't backed down, what else can they do but back their man? Yeah. What else can they do but say, yep, yeah, I'd, I'd do it again next time? And what else can Pat Cummins do but say, that's all nothing wrong with it? They, yeah. they, they've, they've put themselves in a position where they have to back what they've done. And, of course, England have leapt on that. And yeah. as you say, we can perhaps give them a lot of credit for how smart they've been in, in manoeuvring all of this narrative to to support their approach and if australia find themselves on the wrong side of that which england have cleverly managed to make happen then that puts australia in a in a difficult position it gets the crowd a little bit more hostile and it creates a better percentage of winning for england which you know in the end like we keep saying it's not that england don't want to win they're trying to increase the probability of winning by taking a sort of contrary view a sort of counterintuitive view to winning it's like if we if we deprioritize winning we're more likely to win and this is the central point that the the media haven't really got their heads around and we're seeing a manifestation of that all over the place so i just find this absolutely fascinating it is fascinating and it's very powerful and from a psychological perspective you know, if you if you were to write a textbook about how to put yourself in the best psychological chance to perform at your best day in, day out, then you could take an awful lot of examples from what the England cricket team are doing at the moment. You really could. Yeah. And I, I guess the next test is coming up. You know, we've covered a lot of ground today and I think... We've, we've been positive about England's approach once again. Everyone's a bit more positive after a victory anyway. But with the next test coming up very shortly, we'll be having another conversation in a week or so's time. And it'll be really interesting to see whether this has paid off in terms of the results, whether the focus on the process enables England to continue to put in good performances. And, and, and there really does seem to be very little to pick between these two teams. And so I suspect that their ability to maintain clarity and and play their natural game, let their talent shine through rather than have it interfered with by their emotions is, is going to be the difference between these two teams. And I think looking at the England selection for this team with Ali, Moen Ali at three and bringing Anderson in for Ollie Robinson, so giving Anderson a go on his home ground, it's the most logical thing that they could have done, the most logical set of decisions with clarity. Yeah. So what are they going to be asking Anderson to do? Well, they're going to ask him to commit to doing what he does at Old Trafford. Come in, exploit the conditions, bowl, bowl the way he bowls, execute his skills. It may or may not work, but at least there's complete clarity around what England are trying to do here. Well, it could be glorious, couldn't it? It really could. And what a fantastic opportunity for Anderson, who really wasn't at his best in the first two tests. He's had a rest. He's had a chance to think. He's coming back at his home ground. And we 
know that the best bowler in history has got what it takes. If he can get his 40-year-old bones moving, <laughs> then I think we could see something quite spectacular. What What are your predictions for the match? Who's going to win? It's going to be another close one. It's it, The issue with this is back in 2019, we were in a similar situation where we got back into the series with that amazing Stokes innings at Headingley in 2019 to win the match. And then we went and lost at Old Trafford. So history might suggest that could happen again. I just think that Australia have got some selection problems. So Marsh came in and played very well and got his century. They're now talking about playing Marsh as an opener. And that seems like quite muddled thinking to me. Now, I don't believe they will do that. I think they'll keep Warner. So they're going to drop Warner. The talk is drop Warner and bring Marsh in. I think that starts to get quite muddled. If they stick to their, but if they stick to their current batting lineup, lineup, that has problems. So I think this lack of clarity within the Australian batting lineup may just tip the balance, but we're going to have to bowl well. So if we bowl well and that lack of clarity continues, there's a lot of ifs in there, then England will win. So I'm pretty much sitting on the fence here. <laughs> that is a fantastic job of sitting on the fence. I'm not going to let you get away with that. What's your prediction? <laughs> Well, you know, oh dear, don't press me, don't push me into that because I think. <laughs> okay, Australia... well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you my prediction. My prediction is that England will win. I, I agree that the pressure's on, and it's it's going to be difficult. But I think that they're giving themselves the best chance of not letting that pressure get to them. And mm. so I'm, I'm definitely project, predicting a, a big win for England, probably. I'm reckoning 10 wickets in the match for for Jimmy and a, a century for Bairstow. How does that sound? Insane. <laughs> so I'm going to do what I do with West Ham, which is I'm going to predict an Australia win because I always I always predict whoever's playing West Ham, I always predict they're going to beat West Ham. So I'm going to predict an, Austra- predict an Australia win so that I can either be right or I can be happy. Okay. <laughs> One of those two things is going to happen. <laughs> well, on that note, I think we should probably wrap it up. And uh, thanks again for a really interesting conversation. I hope the listeners have enjoyed themselves uh, listening to us uh, chatting through our perspectives on these two teams. And we'll be back after the fourth test. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye.